Hello, it's Fern here, popping in quickly before the show because I really want to hear from you. I'm forever grateful to you every single time you press play on an episode of Happy Place. And this show really is for you. So in the interest of doing more stuff that you love and less of the stuff you're not bothered by, I would love it if you took a couple of minutes to fill out a little survey for me. The link will be in the show notes. Your input on the content and the format and the guests and all those types of things is so important to help me and the Happy Place team shape the future of Happy Place. So just click on the link in the show notes to share all your thoughts and musings. I appreciate you loads. Life can be a bit of a handful. But what do you do? Let go. Or grab on to everything it has to offer. Ask yourself, do you back down when things get tough? Or confront them, breasts on. Do you give up or give it hell? Do you ignore your amazing boobs or fearlessly check them regularly? We thought so. This is grabbing life by the boobs. So grab regularly and check out any changes. It could save your life. Search Copperfield. Grab life. Hello and welcome back to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and this week we're returning to Chiswick House in West London for another live chat. And my word, it is a roller coaster today as we meet Billy Munger. When I first started doing simulator stuff, I did the brake, I did the throttle, I did the gears, I did the clutch, I did everything on the wheel. And like, my gosh, it was just so complicated. I mean, like, I've played a bit of PlayStation in my time, but that, <laughs> that, that, that is just another it's a level. It's harder than that. A little bit. Billy is a British Formula 4 driver who suffered the most catastrophic racing accident two years ago, which resulted in losing both his legs, before getting back in the cockpit and racing again just a few months later. It's an incredible, joyful conversation, which I can't wait for you to hear. He's honestly just a remarkable human. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. And now here's the show. I'm so, so chuffed that you could be here today and that you were willing to be on the podcast as well. So thank you for your time. It's a real being here. I mean, you guys are the, the fans and everyone here is awesome. It's, it's a nice vibe, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, like I think it. they're a good bunch. They're nice people, I can tell. <laughs> Billy, I first learned about your story through watching your remarkable documentary, Driven. And if you haven't seen this documentary, I can see heads nodding, so they're, <laughs> they're fans. But if you haven't seen it, I urge you to watch this incredible piece of TV. Um, it's a remarkable documentary that demonstrates your tenacity and your passion and your drive, obviously. And I was just desperate to quiz you and and chat you more after watching it so 
This documentary follows your recovery after a crash you had in 2017. At this point, how long had you been Formula 4 racing for? So uh, I was in my second season of Formula 4. So it was the year that I was looking to try and win the championship and like you normally have a learning year in Formula 4 and then try and win it. So that was the plan that year. And you, you were the guy that everybody was watching, all eyes on you. You were the, you know, the new fastest kid in town. You were the one that everybody wanted just to see. And you did keep winning again and again. You were like the champ. Yeah, no, we won a, a lot of races at the start of the season and we were looking really strong in the championship. So things were going to plan, but I don't no- normally tend to keep plans now after what happened. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so in 2017, we witnessed this crash that you had, which was, of course, life-changing because you lost your lower legs. We got to see the very sort of intimate healing process that you and your family went through during this time. And I think the thing that shocked most people that, that watched this documentary on the TV, certainly me, was how pragmatic you were right from the start. So as soon as we saw you in the hospital talking with surgeons and doctors, your first thought, it seemed to the outsider, was, when am I getting back in a car? Which is such a stupid thing to think now, I say. <laughs> yeah, looking back on that now, sometimes I question myself. Like, why was I thinking about that as soon as I have had an accident like I did? But I've been racing since I was eight, so it was a place where I feel my most happiest. So a part of me was missing when I wasn't doing that. Yeah, I'm sure. So, so we saw that there, and, and the doctors have talked of, about you so fondly because they couldn't quite believe what your reaction was and how positive you were being right from the start that that was your mission that was your goal you were going to get back in a car no matter what happened was it important to you to sort of show everybody around you that was going to be your way of doing things you were going to remain positive and you were going to have a goal that you wanted to see through I think I was surrounded by amazing people I've got to say that like my doctors were incredible and the, the thing that really, I guess, set everything off in motion for me, obviously when I had my accident and my surgeries, I was in an induced coma, so I was asleep. For me, it was like a long snooze up until I think my accident was on the Sunday afternoon when I was racing, and I think I, the first memories I have are from the Wednesday afterwards. All my surgery happened, or the majority of the operations happened, obviously when I was asleep, so I didn't have to make any decisions about whether they were going to save my legs, whether they were going to decide that they needed to be amputated, anything like that. So for me, I, was, I wasn't even 18 when it happened. That was a massive weight off my shoulders, the fact that I woke up and, OK, although this was the situation, the fact that I didn't have to have a role in making that call, I think that would have been super tough for a 17-year-old to handle. The, the, my first and the, probably the strongest memory I have from my time in hospital and the thing that really, I guess, inspired me to be the way I am now is that the moment when I woke up, obviously realised what had happened. The guy that did the majority of my operations, I was very lucky, in fact, that he was a military doctor. So he obviously has done tours in Afghanistan and obviously he was working within a crew, but he told me later on, at a later point, that he one day he had to do 30 of these operations in one day out in Afghanistan. So I couldn't have been in better hands, really, for someone to make the decision and do my surgeries for me. But the piece of advice he gave me, or the message he gave me quite early on, uh, he was chatting to me, obviously, when I realised when I woke up, I was probably a little bit panicked about the whole situation. I feel like a lot of people in that situation would try and, like, 
kind of comfort you and say, oh, it'll be all right, you'll be okay. He was like, the reality is that you've lost your legs, which is obvious, but he, rather than telling me all the things that I couldn't do, he told me all the things that I could do. He said, if you work hard, if you do your physio in the right way, you'll be able to walk again, you'll be able to run, you'll be able to cycle, you'll be able to do all the things that you do now and take for granted, but you'll still be able to do them. So that, for me, was like that kind of moment, that light bulb moment. It was eye-opening to me, because at that time, when you're kind of looking down, your legs aren't there, you're thinking, oh, I'm not going to be able to do this, I'm going to be in a wheelchair the rest of my life, things are never going to get any better, but... The reality is that things will get better, but it would just take time. But I guess that's the main thing that we saw you endure is having to have that patience because you were desperate to get back in a car and you did have a long road to recovery, which, by the way, you did really quickly. <laughs> because, again, the second most shocking thing about watching your recovery was a year... Was it under a year later? You were back racing. Yeah, which, yeah, for me, I was not expecting that to be the case at all because... I had no idea how long it was going to take. I didn't know how long it was going to take me to walk, how long it would take me to, to drive again, if I was even able to drive again. I had no idea of any of those things. I had very good people around me. I was very fortunate with that. I had a lot of support from the outside world, which was crazy for me. I was 17. I had my 18th birthday in hospital, which was, uh, yeah, I'm not proud of having my 18th in hospital, but it, it did. And um, a few of my friends came up from, from home and... Um, probably shouldn't say this, but we snuck out of the hospital and, <laughs> and went for a, a beer down the local pub. <laughs> a true maverick. Yeah, so um, my experience in hospital and well, like, through to my recovery, obviously racing was always at the back of my mind in, in all of that, which I think for me as a racing driver, racing drivers have very little patience because we want to go quick all the time. It's just a force of nature with that. And um, the fact that in this situation I had to be patient it was yeah it was testing it was hard how during that time when you know that you've got to put the work in and I and I'm not sure which is tougher the mental or physical side of that because both require ridiculous insurmountable amounts of discipline and energy how did you stay focused on being patient and your end goal without getting frustrated without letting resentment seep into the situation how did you manage that but there was definitely moments where I was frustrated it wasn't all plain sailing in, in my recovery it wasn't like I just woke up and decided yeah I was gonna be positive and and that's gonna be that there were days where I woke up and I was like oh god what am I gonna do now like think just when it's the worst thing is when you think about things that you have no control over because at that time I was in a situation where I'd spend sort of six weeks when I came out of hospital being able to do barely any exercise a few little bits of physio here and there and I just wanted to start training and getting my body prepared for what was coming up but I had to rest and and that was that was difficult and um it was frustrating in in a lot of ways my recovery but the people I had around me that in those moments where you start to, to have those thoughts it's always good um, to have someone there to pick you up and not all of us are lucky enough to, to have that sort of ne- the network that I had around me. I've definitely met people in my recovery and through my situation. I've met people with, with similar injuries to me that didn't have that and it makes me just grateful for, for the people I had around me. My mum and my dad both took time off of work, which they were able to do and in order to um, just support me. My dad, our house is like a really old house. It's like the least ideal house for someone with my injuries who's in a wheelchair 
there's like steps up into every room it's just like not it's not good so when I was in hospital I was in hospital for about a month my dad was at home doing a bit of a home DIY job putting ramps in and and lots of other things like that so yeah I was fortunate given that's the situation my mum and dad that they could be there to support me through it. I guess that support network became the foundations for you being able to stay in that positive mindset to then get yourself back out there because like I said in under a year you were not only back racing but you had gone up to Formula 3 so a whole different car Whole di- is it? Would, would you describe it as a different sport? Is it that different to to sort of uh, it's definitely retrain yourself? Yeah. yeah, definitely a step up. It's not a whole new sport because racing is is racing at the end of the day. You do the same things, but it just happens quicker the, the higher up you go. So a lot of people in that stage where I was trying to get back racing, I had no idea. There was a rule in place when I had my accident from the governing body of the sport that disabled drivers couldn't compete in single-seaters which we had to get overturned for me to even be able to race single-seaters in the first place. And then moving up to F3, my thought process behind that, and um, a lot of people questioned me on this, was because I was winning in Formula 4 and I was at probably the highest level in that category, I felt like I didn't want my career to be affected by the fact that I'd had this injury, which sounds stupid considering what had happened, happened. But... Yeah, I was just thinking about the long term and that I didn't want to be set back a year and feel like I was doing things that I was doing before. If I was going to come back to racing, it was to try and challenge myself. It was That's what it was like. like. Everything is a challenge for me, especially given that I had to come up with all the controls with my team. Everything else was hard. So I was like, well, why are we taking the easy option with going back to F4? Why don't we... Let's make it even harder yeah. and get a whole new car that's really, really fast. Um so this is the bonkers thing. Not only were you facing such adversity and like all the rehabilitation you were going through, the physical and the mental trauma of that, but also you were having to sort of, I guess, bash your head against the wall with the people running all of this because you were having to get rules changed, which you were successful in doing. Yeah, so that was... Um, I was lucky that the, the governing body, they understood that... Obviously, there were safety procedures I had to meet the requirements of to even get my licence back. I had to be able to get out the car within five seconds. So, obviously, I had to learn my own way of doing it. And actually, now, if anything, I'm quicker than I was before. Yes. How so many seconds are you down to now? It's probably about two and a half, three two seconds. Two and a half. Yeah. Easy. It's because before, in um, single-seaters, the way you're positioning the car is quite like a... You're quite horizontal in the car, and you have to get out. You have to take the steering wheel off to then be able to get your legs underneath to get out and then put the wheel back on that's part of the procedures you have to the wheel has to come off and then back on obviously for me not having my legs on in the car or having a lot my legs are obviously a lot shorter now yeah short things happen um and help <laughs> so um yeah so that was it it was kind of i was able to slide my legs underneath lift myself up it was like first attempt with people filming and that i was very nervous but yeah, it was quicker than i've ever done it before wow so it yeah, wow. turned out all right there are there are advantages mm. <laughs> So you had to go through this whole laborious process of, of convincing the governing body that you were fit to race and that you could get back in the car. The day arrived where you were about to do your first Formula 3 race after everything that had happened. Before going into it, on the documentary, you look pretty cool and pretty calm about everything about to happen. Were you feeling that inside? Nah. Really? <laughs> I was super nervous, like... I'd obviously been out in the car before we got to that weekend, so we started working on the car. I think I had my accident in April 2017. There was sort of about three or four months where 
no really racing things were going on. It was all physio. It was all changing rules and stuff like that. And then it kind of got to about October of 2017, and it was like, okay, well, when are we planning on going back to racing? Because I never thought that it would be the year after. I always thought it was it would be a few years to get things like that working. We started doing some simulator work because I'm the only person who's ever raced a single seater with a disability. At the time, I was still recovering. When I first started doing simulator stuff, I did the brake, I did the throttle, I did the gears, I did the clutch, I did everything on the wheel. And, like, my gosh, it was just so complicated. I mean, like, I've played a bit of PlayStation in my time, but that, that, that is just another level. It's a level, bit harder than that. A little bit. So, um, <laughs> yeah, um, we had to, I had to wait until my leg was, was fully healed before I could then try and use my leg to operate something in the car because I thought that would make things easier on the steering wheel if I can get one of these levers off and, and change it for something else. We started off and we actually had a leg pretty similar to the one I've got now, my right leg. My right leg is not normally the leg you'd use to break in a, in a race car. You normally use your left. But obviously, because I've still got my knee joint on my right leg, it means that my strength and, and stuff is a lot better. So that's why it was quite obvious to me that I was going to have to use my right leg. So I was even... Though I was still breaking with my leg, it was the wrong leg. So Your brain's having to yeah, work a, was a flip side. That's crazy. Yeah. I came into the, the simulator room where we do like a lot of the preparation before the race weekends and stuff like that. And I had my leg on. I was on still using sticks as well because at that point, obviously, my balance wasn't, wasn't very good. I took my leg completely off and tried to break with just like the bottom of my stump. Um, so like where the, like my bone and skin is. Not good pretty painful couldn't really brake at all I think in racing you need to hit about 90 bar brake pressure to stop the car effectively and I was hitting about 5 so not good we were looking at the prosthetic and thinking should we have a I was obviously in a room full of a lot of mechanics uh, they were planning on playing around I'm pretty sure they planned it in advance but I didn't know about it till I turned up next thing you know I come out there taking my leg apart with spanners obviously <laughs> The doctors wouldn't have been very happy with no. them for doing it in case they put it on the wrong way around or whatever. And, Not um, great. They, they took it apart, so I used just the, the socket, which is obviously a lot harder, so it, I could take more impact on it. We used that, and I was like hitting 30 bar, so still a long way to go, but we were like, okay, that's better. And it yeah, got to a stage where then my, um, my team that, make my, that have helped make my prosthetics to walk on came down to the simulator. They made a prosthetic leg just for racing, which I, I still use now. It just went from there. It was just like so many things went on that I lose track of what happened, really. Wow. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So you've got to this day. You're in the car. You're about to do this first race. And you know everyone's watching because everyone knows what you've been through. Everyone is cheering you on from the sidelines like they, you know, they've never done before. This is like full throttle support for you in that car. Your mum is hiding somewhere. Yeah. It's Billy's poor mum has obviously got <laughs> she, to watch all of this happen. She's not being back out there. I'll tell yeah. you that for free. So your mum was not on the track. She was in a porter cabin somewhere, <laughs> not wanting to watch what was going on. 
How do you mitigate any fear from what you've experienced before? Because anybody that's been through something traumatic or shocking, of course there could be some post-traumatic stress afoot and a lot of emotions and fear because of what you've been through, whether that be a muscle memory or a mental state. How did you push past that and just stay focused on you were back in the car and you wanted to win? I'm so intrigued to understand that. Well, I think what I did quite early on in my recovery so when I was in hospital obviously I woke up on like the Wednesday afterwards and I was a bit unsure of what really happened because it all happened very quick like the when I made contact with the car that was stationary I was doing about 120 obviously at that thing at that sort of speed everything's coming past you really quickly I didn't really realize what had happened so I think the one thing that I look back on now and see is the best thing I've like I've done in my recovery is I've watched because I didn't really understand what was going on that weekend I had the live camera for that was obviously our races were live on ITU4. I had the live camera on board me, on like showing my car as I had the crash. So it was watched live at home, which I can't imagine was very nice of the people watching. But for me, in hospital, sat there wondering what had happened, I just went on YouTube and someone had whacked it on YouTube. <laughs> and next thing you know, I'm, I'm watching my crash happen on YouTube. And But it was good for me because I was able to understand that there was nothing I could do, which is obviously... As a racing driver, you're always going to wonder, oh, if I'd done this, would it have been different? But the way it all unfolded and the fact that I was, I was completely blind to what was happening in front of me, I couldn't see anything that was going on. I was blocked, my vision was blocked by two cars. They darted out the way last minute, and here's this stationary car in front of me, and it's too late. So I think it was good for my mental side of things that I was able to see that there's nothing I could have done. And then also the fact it was just such a, a fluke accident like it was, like the odds of that happening again, I'd... Yeah, it's very, like, small. Normally, if racing drivers crash, it's because they've made a mistake, but in that situation, it wasn't. So it was kind of like... I think that definitely helped me overcome the situation because it was like, well, what could you have done differently? Just And do you think from choosing to go through that process of watching it and trying to unpick it and understand what happened that in itself helped you mentally heal because you weren't running away from anything. You weren't hiding from what happened. You were fully digesting and processing what you'd been through. Do you think that, that's been a helpful thing yeah, for you? Yeah, 100%. 100%. That was kind of... Looking back on it now, it's easy to say now I'm looking back on it that that helped me get over it and digest what had happened and, and helped me mentally heal. But obviously at the time, I, everyone in the room was looking at me like oh, I was a bit of a weirdo because I'm sat there on YouTube watching my crash and they're all there in horror, like not wanting to talk about it and bring it up, which I don't know. It was, um, yeah, that for me works. Um, well, looking back on it anyway, because I've, I've not really had, uh, when I was out racing for my first time, I didn't have any thoughts towards it. I think the other thing that helped me as well is that before the, the first race of the season, we did testing and stuff in the car to make sure everything worked and to get me back up to speed with, with everything. And one of the tests was at the track where I had the crash at Donington. So I went back there and kind of drove literally past the point where I'd had this accident all day long. But maybe the first, I'd say probably the first two or three laps that there was maybe like when I went past it. It's at a part of a circuit where you're flat out anyway, so... All we had to do was just keep flat out, and then it, was, it wasn't like it was a corner where the driver could make a difference. It was just like an, an easy flying part of the circuit. So I think the fact that I just went around, pounded around all day, did, I don't know, 100-odd laps just driving past the same point, I was just like so 
like, at ease with going past where it happened and at ease with what actually happened with the crash there. It was like, what more can, what more can I, like, I do? I just find that astonishing because um, I think anyone that is even sat in this room that's been through anything remotely traumatic, you do want to avoid that again. You know, I've certainly had that in my life where a silly comparison because you've been through what you've been through but I'm, I get awful panic attacks on the motorway so I haven't been on it for three years because I'm just going, nope, 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 don't want to know, don't want to do it and I love the fact that from the get-go you went, I'm just going to get back and do it and I'm not going to let the fear beat me. Was that a rational thought or is it just that's just who you are? This is the way that you operate, you've always been like that. I think it's just the way, way I am really. I don't really. I don't really know why I did it that particular way but it just seemed to work for me once I'd watched it once and kind of like at first probably done a bit like eyes closed didn't really want to see it but did want to see it at the same time part of me once I'd done that once it was kind of like I think I just like yeah I think if you let something build up for too long then it can become something that it's actually not that big yeah. like and I think the fact that I just uh, like looked at it when I was when it was so fresh in my mind it eventually it got to the stage I was like yeah well it doesn't really have any effect on me now, which, uh, yeah, was obviously quite good. We should probably point out that in this race, Billy came second. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what that... I mean, it was the... I, during this bit of the documentary, I was, like, weeping on the couch. <laughs> I couldn't breathe. It was... I mean, for the people supporting you and your friends and family, that must have just been one of the most memorable days for you as a family what about me what about you billy <laughs> what were you going uh, yeah, through it is uh, crazy i mean what, was there a bit of you that thought i know i can do this or was it shock that you actually well performed the that way well? this, obviously the first race of the season is like in any sport when you all turn up and you've all done your preparation and you're all there you kind of you don't really know where everyone is at and where you rank amongst everyone else until we went out for qualifying in the morning i think i qualified fifth which I wasn't very happy with because I didn't do the best job myself but I was happy that like wow I'm fifth like this is this is a bit surreal like even I'm disappointed and I'm fifth that's a good sign and then went out for the race that afternoon and um yeah managed to make up some places and the first couple of laps I was a bit like um rabbit in headlights it was all happening very quick I was back racing again like as a racing driver, like the best form of defence is always attack. You always want to look at trying to get past the guy in front so then the guy behind you can't get past you. That's the way that it kind of works. And the first couple of laps, I was all in my mirrors all the time, checking out what was going on behind me. And then eventually, it's, um, I kind of just settled down and, and, and picked a few off and, yeah, finished where I did, which was just surreal. And, um, yeah, to have all my family there, my doctors were there as well. And my doctors, it's a, I've got a really cool relationship with them now. They, one of my doctors comes to literally all my races. And this year I'm competing in Europe. So we were out in Austria the other week. And my, even my mum and dad couldn't come out to this race because they were both working. And yet my doctor, my doctor came. <laughs> it was just like, mad. They like, so they are part wonderful. of the gang. They're part of the family. So, um, oh. yeah, it's, it's cool. I've met a lot of amazing people as well in my recovery that have inspired me in lots of different ways. So it has opened my eyes to a lot of things that before when I was saying, oh, I'll do stuff later and stuff like that. Now I just, like, I go out there and do things. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know, as you've said, you've had this incredible support from the people around you, your family, your doctors, your friends, your buddies from racing. 
we all have to deal with sort of outside noise to some extent in life due to you know our friendship groups and how we communicate with each other on our phones a lot of the time and social media how do you mitigate or just outright ignore any negativity coming in people that have said I'm worried I don't want you to do this or I don't think you should or even I don't think you can how have you got past those sorts of barriers that could for some people stop them in their tracks well I've been quite lucky that I'd I'd say like 90% of the people that I've met have been really supportive of what I'm doing and I've not had too many I guess you could call them haters trying to like bring me down and like tell me I can't do stuff um and I don't know why that is, but yeah, I've just, I'd say I've been quite lucky with that, that I've not had too many people. I've always had people that tell me I can't do things, in which case you just have to ignore it and just go with your gut, really. Is that a rebellious is, streak? Like, you, you, in, your, you know, in your nature, there's a rebellion that wants to go, I'm going to show you, actually. I'm going to do the opposite of what you've just said. Probably, yeah. I yeah. think my mum would agree with that. <laughs> your mum. Um, would you say that your rehabilitation has been tougher physically or mentally they've both been tough in different ways the obviously the it's quite obvious the physical challenges that that come with walking on prosthetics and this is something that to be honest when i used to obviously when i had my legs and i was walking around and you'd see someone on prosthetics you kind of it's just such a different world to the the situation to be in compared to, to all of us guys that i used to look at people and think like not think that it would be easy, but I didn't. You don't realise until you're in there and you're doing this physio and you're you're learning to walk again that how tough it is. And that I remember there was a, there was a moment in the documentary where my doctor said this is like a lifelong thing to my mum. Like you're always going to be coming in for appointments because your leg your sockets aren't fitting right, and there's lots of things that can go wrong and that need tweaking constantly. It's never like a okay, I've learned to walk now and I'm off and. And running, there always there is always little like you think you're going all right, and then your legs don't fit well, and you you get some like bruising, and you have to go back in, and it's like that's the frustrating side of things. But yeah, it's just you just got to get on with it, really, haven't you? Well, that is what you have done. I mean, just in unbelievable amounts. And I think something that perhaps everybody would want to hear, because I've certainly been intrigued about this. You are someone that sets these goals continuously for yourself whether that be in your recovery or in your racing in your career you set these goals and you seem to just keep smashing them and then you set a new one and then you go for it again and I know that Formula One is still something that is in your sights and that's that's where you're headed yeah that's that's still the plan I mean like I said I don't like making plans but that one I'll keep keep Uh, that plan yeah I'll keep Keep that that plan um in terms of goal setting I kind of I keep it really short term as much as Formula 1 is still like the long term goal and that's probably the only one I've really got I just like like to to do stuff that makes me happy that's kind of it racing is one of those things when I couldn't race I picked up on lots of other sports that I was doing I did a bit of sit skiing so hopefully me and my family are going skiing later and I used to love skiing before and now I do it in the sit ski so which is cool because that's something that I've not lost out on considering I used to like it before I could still do it now like I just like to just to live a lot, really. Like, this, I'm still 20. I've got so much like life to live, and I'm very grateful that I'm even here because I couldn't. There might have been a possibility that I wouldn't be here, in which case, well, yeah, <laughs> nothing, nothing I could do about that. But um, 
yeah, I kind of, yeah, just cracking on with things. So with these goals that you set yourself, um, you know, I think we, everyone in this room will have a goal of sorts that they want to achieve in their family life, in their working life, in their social life, um, with their mental health. You know, we've all got these little goals and sometimes it feels like, you know, you can't get there. I can't reach that goal. Why can't I? Or they feel unattainable. What is your process of going from having an idea and setting that goal to achieving it? Is it something that's thought out or is that drive just so insatiable you're just doing it? Um, I think it, it is it's so difficult because a lot of people have got a lot of goals and, and some of them, I've had goals that have been unattainable that I've had to eventually realise are unattainable. But I think the way you get around that is just like, like I say, baby steps. Just like doing, if you've got a goal to get to F1, you're not going to, leave that as your goal and if you're not doesn't look like you're going to get there then all thing all's lost if you make goals to to race in formula three uh to get a podium which i did then to get get my first win which i did this year which is good just keep it simple like life's so complicated with all the other stuff we've got going on i've got a lot of friends that are off at uni and doing their thing and they're stressing out about what they're going to do in two when they come out of uni in two years and i'm kind of like one of those people i'd say i'm quite laid back with a sense that i'm like things are just going to happen how they happen and you've got to kind of just embrace it when you've got the chance to. Mm, you've got to go with the flow and let go, which I'm terrible at because <laughs> I'm a control free. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's a, an amazing lesson to learn. You seem to have absolutely nailed that one already, that there's that acceptance and, and as you say, you've got these incremental goals that you go with and that leads you on to the next sort of level and the next goal seems more attainable and I and I love I love how you do that the day before a race I'm intrigued to know if you can sleep the night before when you're getting ready to go to bed you know what you've got to do tomorrow you know what you want the outcome to be how do you switch your brain off I'm personally asking because I'm a terrible sleeper <laughs> uh, I'm not great on the, the night before a race either to be honest it's like like you say you've just got so many thoughts going on it is hard to switch that off but you're probably asking the wrong person because the night before a race I just yeah don't sleep that well at all <laughs> no you can't there's too many things going on yeah. in your brain do you ever have that sort of mental thought of something you want to manifest and you kind of focus on that yeah so actually that's quite a big big thing in racing because it's an expensive sport and it's hard to be out on track all the time visualisation like that's something that we use as drivers to kind of to like before we go out for qualifying we'll drive the perfect or I'll look like a bit of an idiot because I'm sat there doing all this and nice yeah but I'll like try and drive the perfect lap in my head just so that when you get out there you've kind of and then also you can use it in different ways I've used it before where if you keep making the same mistake at a certain corner and then you you drive you drive in a different way in your head and then when you go out and track sometimes that helps uh, to overcome a problem so yeah, that, that is actually something that we use quite a lot in racing. I love that as a little tool, and I, I definitely want to do it more in life. I'm wondering if it's going to work with like me imagining my kids sitting and eating without being a nightmare <laughs> and throwing stuff everywhere, and if I will then manifest this beautiful vision of a peaceful dinner time. But I doubt it's going to happen. Give it a try. Give it, I'll give it a try. I'll think more Billy about things. Um, we've obviously seen this year in the sporting world this huge love and support for the female England football squad, which has been a beautiful thing for everyone to watch and support. Do you think we're going to see the same sort of thing happen in the racing world oh well, yeah this year there's um they've brought out a female only racing series called w series which is um for for me at first i was a little bit against it and i'm the only reason i was against it is because the whole 
point of me going out to racing and something that is one of my favourite things about me being in the car is that when from the outside, if you went to a race and you were watching and I was out there, from the outside you wouldn't be able to tell that I've had my injuries. I'm out there competing against able-bodied guys, being able-bodied guys. And so for me, when there's talk about segregating sport, especially racing, because it's... Yeah, I don't know. I just I was a little bit like weirded out by it. I thought that well, if I'm racing against able bodied guys, surely we should be able to also be able to compete on a level playing field. Girls should be able to get involved. But there is that sort of racing is always perceived as like a male only sport. So I get it from that side that it's going to get lots of young women into motorsport, which is obviously great. Um, so I'm so I'm all for it now. I've changed my opinion, but at first I was a little bit. Because that is my favourite thing. It's when I'm out in the car, obviously there's a lot of media stuff away that I, other drivers don't have to deal with that I have to now, given my situation. But it, it's kind of nice to get in the car and just literally just clear your mind and just do what you enjoy doing. Do you feel that, that once you're in the car, you almost can just say goodbye to all the chaos around you because no one's going to come anywhere near you, your helmet's on, you're ready to go. Is there a sort of serenity about that moment before you race? Yeah, no parents moaning or <laughs> like that. So, um, yeah, no, it definitely, you just, it just clears your mind. Like, Well, I try to do that as much as possible because when you're out there, uh, you just got one thing to focus on and like I say it's what I enjoy doing so it's it makes things easier um, oh I feel quite emotional that was just an amazing lovely environment because of all of you lot um, and thank you for making it feel peaceful and comfortable but mainly thank you to Billy with the Billy effect <laughs> thank you Billy thanks for having me the irrepressible Billy Munger. May you drive like a demon for many years to come, my friend. I am so glad that I got to meet you and chat to you. And thank you personally, as a mum, for so massively inspiring my son Rex, who is six years old, and you are just his hero. Next week, the Happy Place Festival comes to Manchester, where we hear from Dame Kelly Holmes. In 2005, when I wrote my autobiography, it's the first time I told anybody about what I was going through. I wrote it in the book because I was thinking, how do I tell anyone? Yeah. Well, okay, I wrote it in the bloody book. Yeah. You know, so I, then they know. That's next week on Happy Place. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. A massive thanks again to Billy, to our wonderful audience at the Happy Place Festival, the producer Thomas Griffin and Matt Hill at Rethink Audio, and to you lovely lot for listening. I'll see you next week. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.